Good morning. I love to teach the book of Philemon. I'm going to do this class a little bit differently than we've been doing these classes. And uh, uh, it's because it's a wonderful opportunity to do it as we deal with this book. We're studying the life of Paul. We're not leaving that life of Paul. We're just looking at what he was doing while he was in prison in Rome. So Paul's in prison in Rome and he's writing some letters that scholars called the prison epistles. Epistle being a fancy word for something that was sent. Uh, uh, mainly uh, what we would call a letter, though there may be a few little nuanced differences. Uh, we'll, we'll suffice it to say it. So um, this is a letter that Paul wrote to persuade Philemon to do something. And I ask you this question, have you ever wanted to persuade someone to do something? I make a living out of trying to persuade people to do things. I am a trial lawyer. This is a real-life picture from a case that I tried uh, about uh, an hour or so from here in a courthouse in Angleton, Texas. And I was trying to persuade these 12 men and women on the jury to do something that I wanted them to do. The other side was trying to persuade them not to do something that I wanted them to do. It was a legal war. And in the process of it, as I was thinking back through my life as a persuader, I am amazed at this letter of Paul because I get to travel all over the country and teach people how to persuade. I'll not only do it to lawyers, but I get to give seminars outside of the legal profession on persuasion and, and, and what's involved and how to best do it. And I'll tell you that never in my life have I seen a succinct, clear piece of persuasion any better than Paul's letter to Philemon. It may be the very best that I've ever seen. It's an incredible attempt at persuasion. And I love the art of persuasion. I will tell you one war story, as we call them as lawyers. I was trying a case in a, a, a courthouse down in Wharton, Texas. And in Wharton, I had wound up with a Baptist preacher on my jury. Generally, you never let preachers on jurors, juries. There's an unspoken rule among lawyers. Don't let a preacher on a jury. The reason why is because the preacher probably is a leader. And the odds are the jury will go with the preacher. And you never want to put one person on a jury who's going to sway the whole jury unless you know which way they're going to sway them. <clears throat> the reason we don't have juries of one people, one person, is because supposedly in a multitude of people you come to the best decision making. And so let's don't have one person making the decision. And when you put a preacher on the, the jury, you're always in danger of having it. Well, I got a preacher on the jury. And it was a long story how it happened, but it happened. And I wasn't upset about it. I kind of wanted him on there because I knew I could prove that the defendants in the case were lying. And I thought I had done that. I, in fact, they lied, okay? They just lied. We proved it. They lied, they lied, they lied. So I was getting up for closing argument, and I've got to be persuasive. I've got to persuade mainly the preacher to do what I want him to do. So I thought, well, how do you persuade a preacher? So I decided I, everybody knew he was a preacher. Half the jury went to his church. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's like if you've got Pastor Fleming on a jury and he sits there and says, you know, this is what God wants us to do. Most of us aren't going to sit there and say, heathen, I'm not going with you. You know, you, 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 so you got, we're in that predicament. So 
I've got this gentleman on the jury, and I, and I just stood up in closing argument. And the first words in my closing argument were literally this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard the expression about preaching to the choir. I sort of feel like I get to preach to the preacher. And I looked at him, kind of smiled, and he kind of smiled back. I said, so the text for my closing argument slash sermon is from the Old Testament prophet Micah who in the 6th chapter, the 8th verse, asked this question, what does the Lord require of you? And then Micah answers the question, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I said, ladies and gentlemen, you're here to do justice. The number one thing. And the nice part about doing justice in this case is it'll be the biggest act of mercy item number two, that these boys ever get because at the age of 23 and 25, they'll learn the lesson that we've tried to teach our children that you can't get by in life telling lies. That'd be the greatest mercy we could give them at this age. They should have learned it already. And so why do I say they need to learn that lesson? And I launched into my closing argument. Well, the lawyers for the boys, as I call them, 23 and 25-year-old defendants, the lawyers for the boys thought he didn't know me and I didn't know him. And he just thought I was some hocus-pocus lawyer who had found some passage in the Bible and memorized it just so I could try and persuade the preacher to go with me and that I probably didn't even own a Bible. and had to go online to find something. You know, I'm Google Bible justice. So he decides he's going to out-Bible me with the preacher. Bless his heart. (laughs) So he stood up and he said, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I am frankly appalled that Mr. Lanier would try to quote scripture to you. It's very clear to me Mr. Lanier does not know his Bible. Because Mr. Lanier couldn't find the right scripture that applies in this case. If Mr. Lanier truly knew his Bible, he would know the correct scripture comes from the writings of the Apostle John in the book of 1 Corinthians. (laughs) At which point I stood up and said, Objection, Your Honor. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, not the Apostle John. (laughs) Judge looked at me looked at the other guy, and looked at the Baptist preacher. <laughs> Judge leans forward into the microphone and says, I'm going to have to sustain that objection. It was the Apostle Paul. <laughs> I don't quote scripture often during trials, but that one just seemed to work. <laughs> and the Baptist preacher knew... Uh, who was being honest in that case, um, and did good. Trying to persuade somebody to do something you want, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it's real interesting. This is a letter Paul wrote of persuasion, a letter Paul wrote trying to persuade Philemon and his family to do something. And I'd like us to look at it together. First thing we got to do is understand some of the key people. I was able to, to dredge up their resumes, and so that we could look at them. 
This is the resume of this fella named Onesimus. He's that young boy there uh, with the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Onesimus is there with the Apostle Paul. He, and I've gotten his resume, his occupation. He was a young slave. He belonged to Philemon. Um, he had recently relocated which is a polite way of saying he ran away. Um, he was a runaway slave from Philemon. His religion, we don't know what it was before he met Paul, but after he met Paul, he was a conversion to Christianity. So this is a Christian fellow who stays on and starts helping Paul after he meets Paul in Rome and is converted to the Lord. So um, his personal information, by the way, he was unmarried. I know that because slaves were not allowed to marry. Doesn't mean he didn't, might not have had a significant other or something, but he was legally, legal status, unmarried. Um, now, that's one character, Onesimus. Remember him. You got him? He's in your brain. Okay, character number two, Philemon. He's this fella on the far left as you're facing the screen. His occupation. We gather he was a wealthy businessman and slave owner and homeowner. He owned a home that had multiple guest rooms. If you read your Greek carefully, you'll pick it up. You can infer from the way Paul makes some puns and some statements that Philemon's probably a businessman who has business interests that cause him to travel quite a bit. He has business interests that cause him to keep a ledger of accounts. And uh, he's done quite well with himself. He's got a very nice home for that day and age. His religion? He's a church leader. He is a Christian. He was converted somehow through Paul's ministry. Whether directly by Paul or not, we don't know. Most scholars assume probably while Paul was in Ephesus, through the Ephesian ministry that Paul had that radiated out into the area, uh, this gentleman who lived near or in or around Colossae, which was outside of Ephesus, maybe 100 miles, was converted. He was a church leader, had a house church that met in his home. Personal information, his wife, a dear lady in the middle, Aphia. His son, Archippus, the fella on the right, also very active in the church. Now, Philemon and his wife and son have Onesimus as one of their slaves. Onesimus runs away. Onesimus finds or bumps into or comes to Paul in Rome while Paul is imprisoned. That doesn't mean Paul's behind bars. If you recall in the class, Paul is under house arrest. He's allowed to live in a home. It basically means he's chained to a Roman soldier 24-7 until his appeal before Caesar is heard. So somehow this runaway slave Onesimus is confronted with Paul and Paul delivers the gospel message in such a way that this slave whose house church master never could convert him comes to Jesus. And he stays on and he helps Paul. 
And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon to deal with the problem of the runaway slave. Paul wrote this letter, we believe, about the same time he wrote Colossians, which we studied last week, because a lot of the same people are involved in the personal information. So Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon about the same time. Strike that, that's a mistake. Paul did not write in a physical sense those he probably dictated Colossians and Philemon at about the same time to Timothy. And so he'll say, Paul and Timothy. Da, 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 da. Because Timothy's the one who's actually doing most of the writing. Paul would generally write his hand, signature, or maybe a scribble a personal note at the end of a letter. But Timothy's the one who's doing it. So with that background, Paul writes this letter, and for us to understand the letter and look at it carefully, we need to understand a little bit about slavery at the time in Rome. Because slavery in Rome is different than America's tragic slave past, shameful slave past. It's also different than the Jewish slave system. Under Roman slavery laws... Uh, uh, Under Roman slavery laws, slavery was never race-based. It wasn't, you're of this race, therefore you are a slave. Slavery was, knew no race. Um, slaves were slaves. You might be a slave because uh, um, fathers had the right when children were born. If they didn't want the child, they could abandon the child. They would take the child physically and either go take it and leave it somewhere or just put it outside the house. And there were slave traders who made a practice of walking around collecting discarded babies. And they would raise them as slaves uh, and then sell them in the marketplace. Uh, you were a slave if you were born to slaves. You were a slave if your land was conquered and uh, the conquering Roman army decided to put you into slavery and they would sell you off as slaves. And that was some of the booty that the soldiers made or that the generals made. So slavery was different than American slavery. It was different than Jewish slavery in the sense that Jewish slavery, you know, you'll read about slaves in the Old Testament and slavery. That was very different. That was kind of a, gee, you work for me because you owe me type of slavery and it was one where you got your freedom after six years of working regardless of whether your debt was paid back unless you became a bond slave for life and that was something you had to choose to do Jewish slaves were protected from tyranny they were given religious rights and, and honors and you're allowed to participate fully in society uh, they were protected from violence it was a very different situation with Roman slaves you were chattel you were property. A Roman slave, the master could do with... There is a, a, an illustration in Roman law that says a slave is like a shovel. Anything you can do to a shovel, you can do to a slave. If you want to kill him, you can kill him. It's not murder, it's not a crime, there is no problem at all. A slave owner... Uh, uh, has full rights to do anything they want to do with a slave, just like you would a shovel. Slaves were considered subhuman. They were not on same par with humanity. That was the mindset, and that was the culture. And that's what Paul is dealing with 
as Paul has Onesimus, a runaway slave. Now, a runaway slave typically is going to be made an example of, which means you're going to get beaten to a bloody pulp and then killed. And that's the way other slaves learn not to run away. Paul's about to take the runaway slave and send him back to the church leader, Philemon. And in doing so, Paul sends a letter. Paul has the runaway slave Onesimus take the letter. Here's the letter. Take this to your master and go home. And that's what he does. Now that's a letter you've got to write with care. Don't you think? That's a letter you've got to write with care. It's one chapter in our Bible. I want to go through it verse by verse. So we're going to do it a little bit differently. Instead of me just sort of telling it to you in my own words, I want us to go through Paul's words. So let's look at it, and as we do, we'll pause for some insight we get from the Greek. I want to tell you, Paul's letter takes a very personal tone. Because while Paul says, Paul and Timothy, and he starts out with we, in almost all of his other letters, Paul frequently starts out and uses we, 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 we. But in this one, the we very quickly becomes I. Because this is Paul. And even though Timothy may be writing it, Paul wants it very clear. By the same token, I'm going to one day put out a southern version of the New Testament so that we can read you and y'all and know where they are. Because right now when we read it, you read you, sometimes we don't realize that the Yankees who translated this thing have, got, have used the plural you. Okay? So they'll put you down there, and it means you all. It's y'all. It's plural in the Greek. You just don't get it. But in this one, Paul's letter to Timothy takes a very personal tone, and the y'all becomes just you. Because even though he's addressing the family, Philemon is the one who needs to hear this message. And so with that, Paul starts out, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Paul almost always starts his letters, with the exception of Philippians, Paul starts all of his letters as an apostle. Paul, an apostle. But when he's writing about the runaway slave, Paul wants it real clear. He's writing Paul as himself a prisoner. For Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. He set the mood right there. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. The one who works with us that we love so much, Philemon. And Athia, our sister. She's a Christian. His wife's a Christian. And Archippus, his son, our fellow soldier. A fellow that, that Paul had a very personal note message to in the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians. And to the church that meets in your house. In other words, read this out loud, please. Philemon, Mr. House Church Leader, I want you to read my letter to everyone in your church. Now that may not just be to try and put pressure on Philemon and persuade him. That may also be because when Philemon has the mercy that we expect him to have, the church needs to understand why. 
So Paul addresses it this way. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Lord. Slaves called their masters Lord, but there's one real Lord. And it's Jesus Christ. And he's the Lord Jesus Christ because he's our master. Our being not just Paul, not just Philemon, I mean Onesimus, but Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus as well. He's the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because of your love, because of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. I thank God for the love you have for all the saints. By the way, do you know who a saint is now? The guy that's handing you this letter has been born again and is a saint. Your runaway slave. That's going to come back to you in just a few verses. But let's start it out by recognizing that I thank God for the love you have for all the saints, which is going to include the boy that's just come home. Him. Onesimus. Paul says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I want you growing, I want you to understand full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. I'm praying, Paul says, I am Paul am praying for you, Philemon, that you're going to grow and understand. That you're going to move from where you are to some place of greater depth and knowledge. So no, I'm praying for you. I appreciate your love for the saints, but I'm praying for you to grow. He says, I've derived much joy. I've derived much comfort. I've derived these things from your love, my brother. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Through your love, you've brought refreshing. Okay, that's an important word for this class. So you've got to say it just so it's in your brain. Refresh. 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 Don't forget that word. You've said it. Okay, you can't forget it. 17 minutes. Keep it in short-term memory. 17 minutes. Refresh. Okay? I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints... Whose heart's that going to include? The slave Onesimus. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He's a saint... Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I could flat out order you in Jesus Christ to forgive this young man. I could order you in Jesus Christ to set him free. And it's not out of lack of boldness that I'm not doing it. I'm, it's not, oh, I don't I would, I would hate to do that. I, I, I might come across too bold. He says, don't think I'm not bold enough to do it. I'm plenty bold enough. I'm not doing it. 
Because it's much better if I just appeal to you for the sake of love. So, for love's sake, I'm going to appeal to you. And here's what I'm going to do. I, Paul, an old man. He's not saying, oh, have pity on me, I'm an old man. He's saying, I've I, I got the voice of experience. I've been around the block. Old man in the Greek, presbutes, is the same word we get elder from for the church. Presbuteros is the elder form. But he says, you know, I'm, I've been around the block. I'm going to appeal to you. An old man, oh, and did I tell you I'm a, not just an, an old man, but uh, I'm a prisoner? Now let's pause for old man for a minute because this is a good passage that gives us some insight into how old Paul was. If we were going to read our Philo, Philo was a Jewish guy who in Alexandria, Egypt, who wrote uh, um, histories and, and stuff. A, a number of things that Philo wrote, Philo quoted Hippocrates, the father of doctors. Dr. John Adams is here this morning. I saw Dr. John somewhere. Oh, there he is back there. Hippocrates, the Hippocratic Oath that you took to be a doctor. Um, hypocrisy says, said there were seven ages of man. And so there were seven Greek words used for men. Here they are. First, there's little boy. A little boy is age zero to seven. And at seven, he's the magic age because that's when he, quote, sheds his teeth. Then you become what the Greeks would call a boy. And that's the next seven years of your life, two times seven, as Hippocrates and Philo say. So it's seven to 14. And that's when you hit puberty. And then the third age of a boy or a man is when he's what translators call a lad. And that's up to the age of three times seven, one, when, quote, his chin grows downy. Which means it's time to start shaving. Then there is a young man. He goes up to age 28, four times seven. And he is a young man till 28 because that's what it takes for his body to grow. Now you're thinking, but I hit the height I am when I was 18, 19. Well, that's not the only way your body grows. Right? You sort of start finding that good pear shape around 28. After that, you become just a typical Greek man. And the word is just man. And that lasts till seven times seven or age 49. And that's when you're a, a man. Then comes the word Paul uses, presbutes, which is an elderly man. That lasts from 50 up to 56, eight times seven. And the reason you're that is because that's when you're an elderly man. And then they use the word... Old man. As anybody who's over 56. <laughs> That's because when you're over 56, in their thought, you're old. So, Paul says, I'm an elderly man. We figure Paul's in his 50 to 56 age. Which means Paul was born probably about 5 or so A.D. If that helps us place it. We're assuming Paul wrote this around 60 to 62 A.D. So, I, Paul, an old man now, a prisoner for Jesus. Oh, did I mention I'm a prisoner? While I'm asking you to have mercy on the slave, did I happen to mention I'm in prison? 
Oh, yeah, I guess I already did. Well, let me mention it again. A prisoner for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child. See, I didn't just write it to Philemon and his wife. I included their son. Well, this is my child. You think of how you want your son treated or your daughter treated. This is my boy. I became his father in my imprisonment. Did I mention I was in prison? Let me mention it a third time. In my imprisonment. Now, formerly, this fellow, Onesimus, was useless to you. He ran away. But now, he's useful to you and to me. Paul's making a play here. The name Onesimus, do you know what it means? It means useful. So Paul's saying, formerly, Onesimus wasn't Onesimus to you. He wasn't useful. Mr. Useful was not useful, but now he is in fact useful. I've made him worthy of his name. Onesimus was a very typical name for a slave. It was, a, it was an appropriate slave name. It wasn't an appropriate name for a freedman as much as it was for a slave. So he says, formerly, oh, useful here, was useless. But now I've made him useful again. And so I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart. Just appealing to you out of love to do what's right. After all, you refresh the hearts of all the saints. Your love the way of things you do. I mean, even here, while I am in prison, it occurs to me as I'm praying for you that you'll grow. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad, Paul says, to keep him with me. I'm not sending him back because I got to get this kid out of my hair. I'm not sending him back because he keeps asking me these questions about the Trinity. I'm not sending him back because he's theologically difficult or a pest or the kid eats like a horse. I'm sending him back even though I'd love to keep him. But I'm sending I'd love to keep him so he could serve me on your behalf because you ought to be taking care of me. Did you know I'm in prison for the gospel? I am. And you're supposed to be helping. I mean, I'm doing this for the gospel. We're on the same team. You're supposed to be taking care of me. I'd love to just keep him and know that you're doing your part, Philemon. But instead, I'm sending him back in spite of this because I didn't want to do anything. I prefer to do nothing without your consent. I'm not going to do it without your okay so that your goodness might be the reason. Not because I'm forcing it on you. Not by compulsion. Not, I'm, I'm not forcing you to do this. I'm doing this because I want you to do it of your own accord. It's your goodness that I'm after here. So, this, this may even be why God had him separate from you for a while. This may be why. He was parted from you for a while. 
that you might have him back forever. Not just like, oh good, he's not going to run away next week. I'm talking about eternity. Eternity. Forever. You're not going to have him eternally as a slave. More than a slave. As a beloved brother. Especially to me. But how much more to you? Both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, beloved. That's not the first time he's used that in this short little letter. Not only is Onesimus now a beloved brother to Paul and to Philemon. Do you remember where else he used the word? In the very beginning. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So Paul starts this letter out. And don't you think when you get a letter from St. Paul the Apostle. And he says, I really love you. I really love what you do. I love you. That's got to make you just feel so good. Paul loves me. And he says, that same love I have for you, you and I both need to have for this boy. He's our beloved brother. Especially to me, but much more even to you. So, if you, here's this business language. Paul lapses into very business terms. Now, you got a, a, a businessman who keeps books reading this letter. If you consider me your partner, I want you to receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all, if he owes you anything, just put it on my account. Put it on, on, on charge it to me, okay? Just, okay, in the day. Paul's my partner. Let's see. Uh, uh, Paul ate that steak. That was $12 off of his end of the thing. Oh, and Onesimus, he ripped me off when he ran away. So uh, I'll just debit Paul's side of the equation on that. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. At which point he says to Timothy, give me the pen. I will repay it. Here, Timothy, you pick back up. By the way, when you're looking at the ledger sheet, remember, you owe me your whole life. Now, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh. Say that word with me. Refresh. It's still important. Refresh my heart in Christ. That I want some benefit from you. That means, another way to translate that word is use. It's the word Onesimus. I want some Onesimus from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Because I've derived much joy in
I'm not throwing it away, are you? No way, no how. Onesimus was probably a young man. I may run three minutes over. Are you all okay with that? Onesimus was probably a young man, but he got his freedom. Old slaves don't run away. <laughs> You're an old slave. You, know, you just don't have the energy anymore. It's kind of like, ah, that's all I've known for 40 years. I'm okay. It's the young ones who, I can get out there and do it. I'll make it to Rome and have my freedom. Um, he, sent, he sent me. You know, he'd have been just the right age to be an elder in the church in about 100 A.D., maybe 40 years later, when Ignatius, the church father, writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, which would be the central church over Colossae or in that region. And it's a very interesting letter that he writes. It says, um, the letters of Ignatius, he wrote seven of them. Here's his letter to the Ephesians. In his letter to the Ephesians... He says in chapter 1, verse 3, Since therefore I have received in God's name your whole congregation in the person of Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love who's also your earthly bishop. You don't take a slave with a slave name and make him a bishop of a church. This has got to be a freedman probably. What's a freedman doing with a slave's name in that area? Well, I strongly suspect that Onesimus is Onesimus. It's not just me. This is what a lot of scholars say. If you look at the letter, not only does he say, you know, blessed is he who's graciously allowed you, worthy as you are to have such a bishop. Onesimus was an incredibly well-known bishop. He'll talk about Concerning my fellow servant Burrus, who's by God's will your deacon, blessed in every respect, I pray he might remain with me both for your honor and Onesimus's. And Crocus also, who's worthy of God and of you, whom I received as a living example of your love, has refreshed me in every way. It's a very rare word Paul used for refresh in the Greek. It's the same word that's being used here. In every way, may the Father of Jesus Christ likewise refresh him together with Onesimus. Most scholars recognize Ignatius clearly had the letter of Philemon with him as he writes this. He goes on to talk about, may I always have joy in you, if that is I'm worthy. It's proper, therefore, in every way to glorify Jesus who's glorified you so that you can be joined together. I'm not commanding you as if I were somebody important, for even though I'm in chains... For the sake of the name, I've not been prepared. I'm not ordering you. I'm in pre Paul's letter was an example, but most scholars also recognize that it was from Ephesus that Paul's letters were gathered together. And I'll bet you when we get to heaven, we'll find that Onesimus gathered together Paul's writings and secured them for the church. We know he already had Colossians. He probably had Ephesians. And he certainly was not going to leave those letters without including Philemon. The letter that got him his liberty. Points for home. Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you. For love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. 
That's the way God deals with us. Oh, he lays it down, thus saith the Lord. But in truth, the ultimate way he has appealed to you and to me to follow him is by showing us his love. We love because he ordered us to. No. We love because he first loved us. And if we love him, we'll do as he commanded. Point two. Formerly he was useless to you. Now indeed he's useful to you and me. Luther says we're all God's Onesimuses. We're all useless until we come to know Jesus Christ. But once we come to know Jesus, we're useful to God and to man. And finally, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing you will do even more. Wow. There's a phenomenal sermon. I close and I'm just going to read you this. It won't take even a minute. But a phenomenal sermon in the 300s by John Chrysostom, the honey-mouthed preacher, if you remember that from church history. Uh, in the 360s, 370s, he preached a sermon on this book, Philemon. And he says, if we forgive our neighbors their sins, ours are forgiven to us. If we bestow alms, if we're humble, there are many ways that purify. So let's in every way war against the devil. I've said nothing difficult and nothing burdensome. This isn't hard. Just recognize what's going on in this world and live in forgiveness for people. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you'll move in our hearts to forgive those who've wronged us. That we'll be people of love who grow no matter how stout we are, even in church leadership, that we will continue to grow, to learn your love and see how it releases from sin and, and wrongdoing and, and the forgiveness that flows from you and the love that can grow in our hearts. I thank you for this letter and its place in our Bibles and in our hearts and the personal touch it shows. We pray these things through our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.